0: It's How Do We Fix It? with Richard and Jim.
1: Steve Hilton on the case for being more human.
3: One of the most destructive and damaging words in the entire world, both in government and the private sector, is the word efficiency. In the name of efficiency, really stupid and inhuman things are often done. Our show is
1: about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Jim, do you remember a time when you called a business and after two or three rings, a human being, not a recording, answered, hello, can I help you?
2: Yeah, it doesn't happen too often these days. You know, with automation, online systems and big government, we've lost some of that
1: human touch. Our laws have become more complicated, government and corporations growing more automated and centralized, and the gap between elites and the rest of us have widened.
2: So our guest today is Steve Hilton. Uh, He's the author of the book, More
1: Human, Designing a World Where People Come First. Steve is co-founder and CEO of CrowdPack, a Silicon Valley startup, and also former senior policy advisor to Britain's Prime Minister, David Cameron. Steve Hilton, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Great to be with
2: you. Now, you say that modern life has become too big, too industrialized, too remote from real human (laughs) contact. (laughs) Too remote
3: from real human contact. How did that happen? What can we do about it? I think it's it's not just human contact. It's a sense of control over the things that matter. Um, and it really is about the way that we've designed, um, I think inadvertently over the years, systems and structures for running things, everything from government to big corporations to the way we raise children, the school system, healthcare, even the way we produce and consume food. So many aspects of our lives have become... Distant from the human scale. What that means is that people feel they can't control the things that matter to them. And I think that is the underlying reason you're seeing so much frustration. In politics, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, where people feel that the the decisions are being made that affect their lives, and there's no way of them really getting involved in that process.
1: Yeah, it seems that in recent months, almost all of the surprise election candidates, from Austria to Britain to the United States with Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, are all like, I'm pissed off with the system campaigns.
3: That's right, and I think that the problem... Is that that, um, in a way, positive energy, that desire for change and shaking things up is not being channeled in what I would consider constructive direction towards a program of real reform. And that's why I wrote my book, More Human, because I wanted to set out from my perspective how we would do something about this. So when you say human, what do you mean? Well, let's just take something like the school system. I think that's a really good example. If you look at the debates around education in America today, they're pretty superficial. Um, to the extent that it is even part of uh, the current election campaign, the focus is on common court. Let's just use that as an example. You know, who should set the curriculum? Is it the federal government or is it the states? And it's just this back and forth. But really, the fundamental problem is that you've got a school system where the whole structure forces us towards this factory schooling. This idea that you've got one big local school that is run in the same way along the same lines that we've seen for schools for literally over a century. Not even from the 20th century, this is from the 19th century where kids sit in rows and they're instructed according to certain things and there's tests and... This whole system is actually inhuman in the sense that it doesn't prepare children for the world they're actually going to live in. Well, let's take an example of a town. I
1: mean, a town I live in, Guilford, Connecticut, they just built a local high school that is funded at a huge cost. And these, it's like a really large building they put up for a town of, I think, 25,000 inhabitants. What would you do? Would you say, no, that's not the objective, to have one big local high school, but perhaps to have smaller
3: yes, uh, local... exactly. Uh, we, we all know as parents that they're really different. They learn in different ways. They relate to each other and adults and, and the world around them in different ways. And our school system doesn't reflect that. So what I would like to see is in every community, not just one local school or even one local school and perhaps a, one charter school that you can you can go to as an alternative. But 20 or 30 different schools in every neighbourhood, some will be very traditional in their approach to education, some completely revolutionary and progressive. I write in my book about examples near where I live in Silicon Valley where we send our own children schools that are really reinventing and rethinking the whole concept of what school is. Well, how are they different? They're different because they see, for example, the the starting point is to say, well, what we really should be focusing on in education is not the content that children learn because increasingly they can get that from other places, from Google and so on. It's about their character because what really will equip children to do well, to live a a flourishing life where they can be happy and productive and successful is things like being able to work as part of a team, being entrepreneurial, being resilient to changes—when you're not going to have a job for the whole of your life—you need to be very flexible in your in your personality, in your character, your creativity. All these sorts of things are handled really poorly by a school system that is about learning by rote and testing by rote, in and treating everyone the same.
2: Now, you uh, in your book, you make an interesting statement about the Victorian era. In some ways, we associate this model of education with with a kind of of Victorian values, but but you actually make a defense of Victorian values, the idea that schooling
3: should inculcate some positive moral virtues. I think that the um, good thing about the Victorian era, separate from education, actually, is the way that they thought for the long term. Um, The London sewer system. yeah, Yeah, exactly. So I think that perhaps another example of what we need in terms of a more human approach to current policy problems, I think one of the best examples is the debate that we're having right now on poverty and inequality. It is all centred around quite technocratic, bureaucratic systems for dealing with poverty. Top-down do we, systems. Top-down systems. Do we raise the minimum wage or cut it? Do we have the earned income tax credit or not? How do we, how do we deliver various government services? In fact, if you, as, certainly this was my experience in government, if you actually look in detail at the problems of poverty and inequality. In the end, it comes down to a human problem, a human being, a family, an individual. And very often, the things that keep them trapped, things to do with their own emotional and psychological makeup that are really poorly addressed by these centralised, top-down bureaucratic schemes. You've got to understand them as individuals and help them as people. And that's the kind of thing that we try to do in the UK and I write about in the book with programmes like the Troubled Families programme. Yeah, yeah,
1: give me an example yeah, of one thing that well, might a, help a,
3: with, with, with dealing with poverty. Here's a, here's a real story. I, I, I saw the data that showed how many families, hundreds of thousands of families in the UK, the way we described them was that these are the families who have the most problems but are also causing the most problems. If you look at where government spending goes in terms of welfare and crime and and educational failure and, and addiction and all these social problems that have been with us for generations, it's really concentrated in actually quite a small number of families. So I thought, well, let's try and do something about that. Instead of just handling this problem, let's try and solve the problem. And so we set up something called the Troubled Families Program. And the idea there was that for the most problematic families in the country, we would really try to understand them as human beings, give them a family worker that would be tough, but also emotionally engaged with their life and sweep away all the other bits of government assistance that they're receiving. So let's just take a real example. There's a a woman that I remember um, as we were piloting the program. She lived on her own as a single mother... The house was in complete squalor, full of garbage, I think beyond anything that that you could imagine in terms of the normal life that we're all used to living. I remember the doors had all been taken off the hinges. There were no doors in this house. And I was wondering, well, is that because they just haven't been repaired or whatever? It turned out that actually the children had taken the doors off the hinges because it was a practical way for them to deal with the problem of domestic abuse that the mother was getting, because if there are no doors, it lessened the chance that the men that cycled through the house would beat up their mother. Now, that family, that woman, was in receipt of, I don't know how, you know, at least 10, 10 10 or 12 different bits of the government trying to help her, local authorities, social workers, probation officers. She was not in, there was no shortage of, inverted commas, help going to that family but actually the help was keeping her in poverty because it was all determined along the lines of the structures of the bureaucracy no one no single person was actually thinking about her as an individual so that's where our family worker our family intervention worker comes in and just literally had to force herself into the house. The woman wouldn't let her in. But in the end, she won her trust and said, let's deal with this in a very practical way. The first step was, we've got to clean up this house. So the family worker turned up at the weekend, made them all do it. She then said, right, no one's getting up in the morning here. The kids are not in school, nothing's happening. So she went there every single morning, woke up the mother, woke up the children, got them out of bed. These simple, practical human things that previously no one had actually helped them with. After about three months of this, the mother was able to get herself up in the morning but still not able to get the children up. So the family worker was still going in every morning to get the children up, get them off to school. Another three months later, the mother finally got her act together to be able to do that. Very human, specific, simple things. She then said, well, we got to get this woman a job. But she's never going to get a job or anything close to being a job when she has no confidence because of simple things like her hair's falling out. So she got her a wig. She fixed these practical problems. She then went to a local, the family worker went to a local uh, thrift store and said to the person, look, there's this woman I know. Can you give her two hours of work this afternoon? I don't know, folding up clothes, something really basic. And she said, fine, OK. The woman goes along, takes, takes the mother with her and literally for 2 hours she's working in this in this in this local store and at the end of it the guy says to the woman can you come back tomorrow and she burst into tears because no one in her entire life had ever expressed to her the sense that she had any value that she could contribute anything and then 3 months after that this woman has a job and that simple process of getting her life on track happened because the family worker dealt with her as a human being rather than as a number on a spreadsheet in the local bureaucracy.
1: And yet the way we debate poverty is always around, should we add this program? Should we spend money
3: on that? The program I'm describing to you, you, you could describe it as a top-down centralized government program. We designed it in London. Um, But it was designed with human beings in mind. And a lot of flexibility
2: in the implementation.
3: That's right. And that's a crucial point, so that you're not over-prescribing. What you're saying is we're going to hire some great people to be these family intervention workers, and we're going to leave it to them to figure out what that family needs. To take a step back from it for a second, I think one of the most destructive and damaging words in the entire world right now, both in government and the private sector, is the word efficiency. Efficiency. Because I think that in the name of efficiency, really stupid and inhuman things are often done. So let's take it up to a more macro scale
2: and look at one of the issues that you talk about a lot, which is the influence of money and politics and mm-hmm. what we can
3: do about it. Well, this has become a much bigger preoccupation for me since since moving to America. And I, 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 in fact founded a startup, CrowdPack. My 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 tech startup was the original impulse for that was to try and do something about this problem of money in politics by um, creating what we are now, which is a crowdfunding platform for politics, so that candidates and organisations can raise money. Uh, without depending on the big donors, whether that's from the left or the right, whether that's the unions on the left or the big businesses on the right, that more and more candidates are reliant on a smaller and smaller group of people and organizations for their funding. And so when Donald Trump says um, on the campaign trail, as he did in the primaries, that his Republican rivals as well as uh, hillary clinton are are literally puppets of their donors. That strikes a chord because it 's not far from the truth. If you actually look at what happened, for example, with Obamacare, you know the, you can see how the policy was distorted by the money involved and you see it time and time again if you look at what 's going on with I'm, i i 'm slightly obsessed with food the way that that, right. f- that food in our country um is so literally toxic poisonous um And costing us so much in terms of people's health and well-being, but also costing money in terms of the health uh, implications. That is the not to mention
2: massive flows of money to. Well, that's the reason for that is
3: exactly because of the because we subsidise it crazily. We actually take taxpayer money, we put it in the pockets of these v- vast agri-businesses to produce toxic junk that then makes everyone sick, that then costs more money to remedy. It's completely mad.
2: And if that's not enough, then we also insist on growing even more corn to turn into ethanol to put in our gas tank because we don't need it.
3: Correct. And that's not even to mention the environmental impact of the kind of monoculture that you see, the impact on the soil, the destruction of natural habitats. I mean, it, it, it is driven by the total corruption of the system and the way that big businesses particularly, but I would also include unions in this, literally buy the outcomes they want from the political system and, and probably even worse than the than, than what's often discussed at the federal level in terms of Congress and presidential candidates. Actually, I think much worse is what's going on at the state level. And there's hardly any scrutiny of what goes on in state legislatures. And the, and the, um, the influence of money at that level is in a way more powerful and more destructive. So what do you do about money? Do
1: you encourage uh, systems where uh, there is more crowdfunding for politicians that people are able to uh, find it easier? Or maybe even there, there's like a, a matching fund for people who contribute mm-hmm. $25 to a local candidate. Well, we're
3: seeing that uh, that's happening in Seattle. And, and we're going to be, um, I hope, we're involved as CrowdPack. In that experiment, which I think is starting next year, where the, Seattle will, is literally about to uh, give uh, va- vouchers of twenty-five dollars uh, for—I think it's four vouchers of twenty-five dollars to citizens who vote in the municipal elections there. I think the broader um, point I would make is exactly as you put it, which is that um, I think, given the reality of the constitution and the and the and the power of the current system, even though you have lots of really great people working for campaign finance reform it feels to me very difficult to see how any of that is really going to happen certainly not at the kind of speed that i would like to see so what i to me the answer and that's why i've uh, started CrowdPack as a practical response within the system that we have in a way is trying to achieve campaign finance reform through the marketplace if we can create a platform that makes it easy for more small donors to get involved then we can actually reduce the reliance of the candidates on them on on the big donors something that they would welcome they hate this just as much
0: it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work
1: the history of the last 100 years is that we've become more systematized we've become more automated even with the rise of the internet big data is is a much bigger impact has a much bigger impact than before
3: all of these you could argue are less human mm-hmm. than what you're advocating i think there are things that you can point to that are big but still human and that technology can make things more human as well as often making things less human and a good example for me which brings those two ideas together is a company like Airbnb. Right. It's a very big company and it's using technology. But it's using scale and technology in order to make possible human connections that that were previously inconceivable, of people going to a different city or, or and 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 meeting new people and understanding the culture. That's a very human outcome. Yeah, from something that's very big and technological. That, yeah, and encourages that sh- the sharing economy. That's right. So I don't I don't think it's right to say that that technology and data and all these advances are necessarily bad, but I think we should be the 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 right way to think about them is not. Is it good or bad? But does it make the world more human or less human? So, are you optimistic? I am optimistic because I think that, generally speaking, progress happens. In many aspects of our lives, things are going well for most people. If you look Better at, than
2: most people think. In I think fact. that's
3: right. The, even, even small things like. Um, the food we eat or the culture that we consume and or, or, or the quality of television. There's so many good things happening through the marketplace, through the work of non-profits and civil society and community organizations and people working together. A lot of good things happening. I think the problem has been this that, that in government, certainly, and in certain parts of the private sector, you've seen a concentration of power that has led, and, and it's partly connected to globalization, that that has led to a sense in which I think we've been For the last few decades, this is not a recent thing, it feels to me as if um, there's been a technocratic agenda that has been pushed forward, almost irrespective of who's been in power. And this technocratic agenda is basically uh, totally positive about globalization, doesn't think about the cost, it's totally positive about technological change, prioritizes efficiency over everything else. Um, the, The way I sometimes put it is that we're we We seem to be living in a world that's that ruled by bankers, bureaucrats, and accountants and you see that in government you see it in the private sector too people working in big businesses will tell you this and that isn't good, and that's what I think we need to focus on is not saying everything is going in the wrong direction, but precisely what is the nature of the change that we want to see and I think it is the the core of it is is distributing power, putting power in people's hands in government, and in the private sector. Steve Hilton, thanks very much. Yeah, Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Jim, the most interesting word Steve Hilton used for me was control. And it speaks to what Charles Duhigg, a recent guest on our show, was saying about the importance of taking control over your habits. I think our loss of control, our sense that our world is spinning out of control is a big part of the problems that we're facing and the discontent.
2: Yeah, and I think that's really the essence of his book. I mean, he calls it more human, and the idea is that there are so many areas where technocrats are making decisions in areas like healthcare and farming and so many different areas that are better brought back down to a more human level, a more intimate, personal level, and I, I think he's absolutely right about
1: that. Yeah, and one of the other shows that we did that really speaks right to this, it's almost like a, a sister show, is Philip K. Howell Yes. talking about the importance of simple principles in law rather than 1,000-page laws. They, they try to specify
2: every detail. So uh, Steve Hilton's example of the welfare worker who was able to come into a woman's home – and work directly with her and and help get the kids out of bed, given extraordinary flexibility to uh, to use her own judgment about how to help this person, as opposed to following a whole lot of very, very specific rules. I think that's a really great example of what he's talking about.
1: Yeah, There are other examples in the book, More Human, and one of them is the importance of nudge, which is to encourage positive behavior rather than merely just give handouts to
2: people right, for, right. for certain things. Cass Sunstein in the U.S. has been A big advocate of this, but I think in in many areas that Steve Hilton is talking about, you can build smart policies that trust people to move in the right direction instead of trying to to legislate or regulate them um, to to make the right decisions.
1: What are some other specific areas? So
2: so one of the other areas that he talked about was in in schools, the notion that we should have a more diverse array of schools, more choices. Now, of course, that's something that appeals to me. I I would love to see parents have lots of freedom To choose their schools, you bump up against one of his big problems, which is the entrenched power of institutions. You know, I think in some areas the teachers union gets a bad rap, but they are dead set against allowing parents to have choice to send their kids to schools they want, and in this, I think they've done enormous damage.
1: Another area, and this goes central to the company that he's formed, CrowdPack, which is involved in crowdsourcing political campaigns and i think that encouraging people to give small amounts of money to political candidates is is a great way to go forward you know one of the solutions here is just less government, less
2: regulation overall. Instead of trying to do it smarter, just have less of it. Why do we even have an agriculture department, for example? You know, it started out as a nice way to help struggling farmers, it turned into a, a massive program which funnels huge amounts of money to big agribusinesses, winds up feeding our kids lousy food in the schools. Uh, along with a few good things like food safety inspections or what are or, or, right. or, or other things. A lot of very counterproductive policies. I
1: certainly think we should look at that. But on the other hand, maybe we need more government when it comes to defense, when it comes to clean air, clean water, um, the welfare of children. The government has a very positive role to play if it's smart government rather than just simply going, here's another program. Well,
2: this is why I call myself a squishy libertarian. <laughs> I am not opposed to yeah. sensible regulation of air pollution, water pollution, all those things. Precisely because the market can't solve those problems. We need, uh, we, we need to step in and find ways to protect all of us from those problems.
1: But I do think that it's not just government. It's also large corporations that are incredibly impersonal. The customer experience with companies, for instance, just putting barriers in the way. I mean, sometimes it takes 20 minutes to speak to a human being when you have a problem with a product. That's absurd. Right,
2: right. So, but this is, but let's at least be happy that their company Companies and not the government, because when it's a company, you can stop using that company and they'll go out of business.
1: Yeah, but don't don't filify government too much because sometimes when you speak to individual government bureaucrats, it's easier to get hold of them than it is to get hold of somebody from Comcast. So it's not merely the government that's Have you the tried problem, calling Jim. the IRS? Yes, I have, and they're fairly responsive, and their website is actually surprisingly good.
2: And in studies have shown that something like 30% of the advice they give taxpayers is wrong. Well, I made up that number, but it's, an, it's a, <laughs> but it's a significant number. But my point is, when companies do a bad job, they eventually go out of business. Not all the ones that stay in business and do a terrible job are usually kept in business by some kind of government support.
1: It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard <laughs> Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. I'm not sure I agree with you on everything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we need another show to debate that. I'm, I'm, that was a big hanging pitch for you, Richard. You have to, you'll have to pick it up yeah, on Yeah, I'll it. have to swig in it later. <laughs> Miranda Schaefer is our producer. And uh, Denise Barberita, our
2: audio engineer. Here at the beautiful Mona Lisa Studios in Uptown Manhattan. And the show
1: is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits and also consult on podcasting. Let us know how we can help.